0: Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now, it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So for the church, this is known as Epiphany Sunday. Epiphany was actually this past Friday on January 6th, and as I said Earlier, I had the great uh, privilege of, on, on Epiphany, uh, the day of Epiphany, uh, gathering with, with others and celebrating the life of, of Keith Tudorow. And it just seems so appropriate that on, Epif- on the day of Epiphany to gather and to celebrate the life of this faithful saint, this faithful servant, uh, of the Lord. Because for the church, Epiphany is is the, the moment of the year. And, and we've talked before about, while this is a, a more contemporary worship gathering, it feels uh, a little more free-flowing in, in, in the way that, um, you know, from beginning to end, the way that our time is structured, uh, we believe that there's great value in, in looking historically at the way that the church has kind of ordered um, the, the calendar year, right? We think of uh, of the year as being you know calendar year running from January um, through December. In a college town, we, we maybe even look at August as the beginning of of a new year, and not so much January. But the church has seen great value over the years of, of ordering um, the calendar, or ordering the life of the church around these significant moments that are reflected um, in, in the life and ministry of Jesus. And so epiphany is that moment uh, when we, we recognize and name the fact that God, God allowed himself to be manifest, uh, to be made known in the person of Jesus. Now, um, <clears throat> typically... We celebrate that by looking if we if we were to back up to chapter two we we, we mark epiphany uh, by looking at the story of the magi or the wise men and their their visit to Jesus and their coming and laying gifts before Jesus acknowledging Jesus as king which is which is incredibly um, significant and it's a beautiful story for us to unpack but in um in in my my research and reading and, and we had we had already planned as we prayed and and, and planned. Gosh, months ago that, that this morning we would have the opportunity to um, to remember our baptism, uh, and and in the. The 11 o'clock service right now, they're, they're actually doing the, the children's nativity, so the kids have led the first part of the service in telling again the nativity story because they were supposed to do that on Christmas Eve, and the weather was a factor, so they moved it to this morning. Again, very appropriate um, for Epiphany Sunday, but they are, in fact, you'll, you'll, you'll hear, and uh, if you were to go back and watch that or listen, um, Ed's message and, and what the children have done would be around this, this coming of, of the wise men. Um, but as I, as I researched, it, it turns out that in, in the early third century, like in the 200s, so the, the church at this point is still young, the way that Epiphany was marked was by looking at the baptism of Jesus, this, this moment where this, this declaration from heaven comes, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Um, again, significant in a different way from the coming of the wise men or the magi. But I just I love the fact that, that we are really stepping early, like back into the early part of the history of the church, before church even really looked like what we understand it today. And in so many ways, we, we tend to kind of look back to, um, you know, the, the early church and Acts and say, what was it that made that so powerful, and how can we experience that today? How can we live into what, what allowed the church to be so faithful Um, and it's carrying out of, of, you know, living as the body of Christ, and so it's just, I love the fact that we get to go back and and mark something in in a way that's similar to the, our, you know, our forefathers, those who who went before us, way before us uh, in the faith, and so we look at the baptism of Jesus, and if you were with us Last week, uh, for our Wesley, uh, our covenant renewal service, and we, we had the opportunity to gather uh, as one church family in, in this space, uh, combined service, just incredibly beautiful time together. But we were, we kind of walked through Wesley's covenant service, this opportunity to recommit, to covenant together, um, in response to the, covenant faithfulness of god and his love for humanity and the work that he has done and continues to do to pursue our hearts and draw us into relationship with himself and and, and we looked back uh, the old testament for that but i want to read again this covenant prayer and and when you came in you had this on your seat and you you have an opportunity if you didn't take one with you last week to take this with you this is for you to have to stick in your bible to to put on your bathroom mirror. Um, on your kitchen table, by the coffee maker, wherever, someplace that's conspicuous. Uh, and I invite you to begin to pray this prayer every day, because every day we have the decision um, to, and, and the opportunity to recommit ourselves. It's not something that we do one time. Um, we, every day we have the opportunity to, to choose to live into um, this relationship with, with God and to know Him not only as Savior in the person of Jesus, but, but more importantly as Lord. To say, God, you, you have the ultimate say in what happens in my life. Um, so, if, if you would, let's pray this, this prayer uh, together. You have it um, on the, the card in your seat. I'm no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee, or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee, or brought low for thee. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. In the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. What a beautiful opportunity we have to follow that commitment that we made together as a church last week with remembering who we are uh, and remembering our baptism and marking epiphany um, in this way. And if we look at kind of the arc of scripture, we see that from the very beginning, God has been faithful to continue over and over again to reveal himself to humanity. And, and I want to read this, this narrative, this quote that I found this week that helps us to, to frame what we're going to talk about in Jesus' baptism and the significance of epiphany and, and this, this God who, though he is set apart, God chooses to reveal himself to us in, in very significant and very pointed ways um, because God's heart is that we would live in fellowship with him. Right? But, but as, we, as we prayed earlier, as we confess, there, so often we, we don't recognize the ways that God is, is seeking to make himself known in our lives. And, and as a result, we, we pursue and we chase other things. So uh, listen to this. God in himself is the transcendent one. Uh, this is by John Egan uh, from A Traveler Toward Dawn. God in himself is the transcendent one. As such, he exceeds and explodes all of our human thought categories. No human mind can capture him. He who is light in himself is darkness for the human mind. How, then, can he communicate himself to flesh-bound human beings in a way calculated to grasp us and grip us and lift us up into a life-giving personal relationship with him? The first way God chooses to bridge the gap is creation. He creates our universe— The bewildering variety of touchable, seeable, hearable, palpable beings so that we can stand before star-studded heavens, before sunrise and sunset glories, before Yosemite and cold water, the might of the Pacific and storm, before the complexity of the atom and DNA and the human body and know something of that maker, his majesty, his intelligence, his beauty, his power. In a real sense, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. God. Creation is the first preaching of the good news. The universe is truly a sacramental universe, disclosing Him. He is the radical secret at the heart of the universe, and so it has been for me in my experience. But He chooses to bridge the gap in a more significant personal way. He chooses out of many nations uh, and people in the years of their history, discloses progressively... From Abraham and Moses on, but most specifically in Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Hosea, his holiness, his desire for human beings, his long-standing faithful love for his rational creatures. And yet, this is not enough. He must lay his heart open to us and give us the supreme argument of love. He must pour out his inmost identity in an ultimate symbol worthy of himself, which would convince us even in our cynicism. Thus, the final way he gladly chose to reveal himself is in his own son, existing before the stars, who had become a limited human being with a body like us and an emotional life like ours, a thinking, loving spirit and a developing identity, consciousness like ours. So Jesus began life as an infant, And would grow up in a backwater town, takes up the carpentry trade, is called at the Jordan Ford and teaches and heals and forms a small group of followers, dies and rises. And precisely through this short life of a carpenter and teacher, God the Father is revealed to the world in stunning clarity. Jesus then is the great sacrament, symbol, revelation of the very depths of the incomprehensible God. What Jesus reveals is the Father's love for us humans, a self-giving love unto death, an unconditional love accepting our flawed condition, forgiving endlessly our weakness and malice. In order for us to appreciate what is happening on the banks of the Jordan, the very river that God's people crossed after they were Freed from their slavery in Egypt after they're wandering in the wilderness and they're stepping into the land that God promised to them through Abraham. The very waters that they crossed to step into, living into that promise of who they were as God's people. On the banks of this very river, John is baptizing. A voice is rising in the wilderness and people were flooding to this voice of this man who is dressed dressed in camel hair and who hate, ate honey uh, and, and wild locusts. I, I mean, if nothing else, people coming to see this spectacle that was this man, John. Because they were used to seeing uh, religious leaders and priests who were dressed in fine garments who are proclaiming the word of God. And yet, here was this man in the wilderness on the outskirts of town who looked very different and who was proclaiming very boldly a message of repentance and a message, an invitation to baptism. If we were to go back to the beginning of Matthew 3, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, "'You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance.'" And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is not really a seeker-friendly message that John is preaching. And yet people are coming in droves to be baptized. So what is it about this message that John is proclaiming that would cause people to come? Because it doesn't feel very loving and inviting. It, It feels incredibly directive pretty harsh if you are one of the religious leaders, but even for the average person who's coming, what they are hearing is repent and be baptized. But in order for us to, to really appreciate what Jesus is stepping into here, the, the significance of this message, the significance of what John is saying here cannot be lost on us. It forces us to ask the question, what is this kingdom exactly that, that John is calling People too. What is this kingdom that, that John is, is saying uh, to people has, has finally come near? And why does that matter? And why are people coming out to see this, this man dressed in strange clothes and eating weird things in the wilderness? And maybe some of you who are parents of, of boys are like, yeah, that's just my kid on an average day, right? Like, that's my son, you know, or maybe my daughter, it, you know, like just out there in, in camel hair and eating bugs and with honey, you know, on them. But, but there's something about this man, John, and this message that, that John is proclaiming. So, if we look at uh, the way that things were ordered, if we go all the way back to the beginning, to the, the Genesis story, the account that we have, this story of, of creation that's given to us in, in Scripture. In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth. God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated light from the darkness. God called the light day. The darkness he called night. God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. And God called the vault sky. God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land. And the gathered waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. God saw that it was good. God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night. Let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. And let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. God saw that it was good. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it. God saw that it was good. God said, Let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. For six days, God created. On the seventh day, God rested. <clears throat> and while we just tend to think of this as the way that we understand creation and God's creative power and and God pouring himself into what we see and what we know and and us being made in, in God's likeness and the fullness of the likeness of God as Father, Son and Holy Spirit there's something else that's happening here God is establishing and creating an order in which humanity and in which the created world is meant to flourish meant to flourish God saw that it was good, and then God created humanity in God's image, and God saw that it was very good, and God gave the gift of relationship, the relationship in which humanity existed, and then this relationship in which humanity existed with God, not just with one one another, but, but with God. When, when Adam and Eve are tempted and when they sin, when they take the fruit that they were not meant to take, it says that their eyes became open, and, and we read that they sewed together um, clothing, they sewed together fig, fig leaves to cover themselves, and God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and God asked, why are you hiding from me? We are hiding because we are naked and we are ashamed. Not we are hiding because you 're walking in the garden, so we 're led to believe that, that there was something about the relationship between God and, and our first parents that this was a common occurrence that God would come and have fellowship with, with, with humanity, that God would come and have fellowship, and, and that this order existed in which they flourished, and this order existed in which um, the creation flourished the way that it was meant to, and there was, there was hard we, we, we reflected the nature of God in our hard work, but we also reflected the faithfulness of God in, in being. Willing to rest when God calls us to rest and this rhythm of life existed in which we flourished and this lie came into it and, and, and told us that God is withholding something from us and we have believed that lie ever since and we reach out and take this thing that we believe is going to, to give us more fulfillment and make us more, um, give us more pleasure than, than that which God has already given us and just like our first parents did, and we are, we are suffering the consequences of that ever since. And, and so we live kind of in this tension of this world that is, that is both beautiful and, and broken. Right, every, every time, as we read earlier in this, this picture that kind of describes God's self-revelation, this epiphany, God, God making himself known to humanity, we named these things, the grandeur of a sunset, being able to look up and see a starry sky, and, and to say there's something about that that's reflective of, of this, the nature of God and the way that God intends things to be. And it's, and it's good and it's beautiful. And, and the gift of love and the gift of relationship. And, and, and think about what happens to us when, when we see an, a newborn, like, like fresh from heaven, this, this baby, even, even down to the way that they smell, there's, just, there's something fresh about a baby and what that does to our hearts. And how good that is and the gift that that is to us or the gift of good food. It's beautiful. The gift of sharing good food with with people that we love and how beautiful that is. And these moments that we, we crave and that we seek and that God gives us as a reflection of the way that things were intended to be. And, and then there's the brokenness is evident in this world too. For all of the food that is good, you have things like sauerkraut, like 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 fermented cabbage, a direct result of the fall in this world, or coconut shavings on a perfectly beautifully iced cake. The just chaos, <laughs> anarchy. And and then you have things for as beautiful as children are. We we see that children are. Abused and just brokenness that's evident in that? Or the way that people are marginalized and pushed to the side, not shown love, not shown care? Or or what about those broken relationships? The evidence of this brokenness that exists in our world or the, the number of selfish decisions that are made every day that affect countless numbers of people this tension that we live in and this beauty and this brokenness and and the story from that moment forward has been the story of a faithful God who has continued to pursue the hearts of humanity continued to find ways to make himself known continued to say to us a a rebellious finite creature there's more than this there is a kingdom there's a way that I've ordered things and I want you to live into it with me He did it through the people of God, his his faithfulness exemplified in in calling the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt and giving them the land that was promised and saying to them, you are my special people, I am your God. We will live together in fellowship and here's what life um, set apart for me is meant to look like and it's meant to be good and you're meant to find freedom in it. And yet we were tempted. We looked outside of it and we said, no, there's got to be more. This can't be enough. This can't be all to just rely on God. What if God doesn't come through? Look at these other kingdoms and these other people and the things that they're doing. We should probably adopt some of the ways that they worship and some of the idols and the gods that they worship. And we continue to, to step outside and to reach for broken things. All the while, God is continuing to speak into the lives of his people, continuing to speak into the the world this promise of hope, this promise of one who will come and ultimately rescue and restore everything. And so the people waited. For generations, they waited. And, And Isaiah and Jeremiah... And Ezekiel and Hosea and the prophets continued to speak these promises of God into this world that was living in the tension of beauty and brokenness into a people who were struggling with their identity and trying to understand who they were. And God is continuing to say, one is coming, I'm not finished yet. Everything will be as it was intended to be because I've not forgotten you. I'm sending my Messiah, I'm sending one who will save, who will rescue, who will heal, who will redeem and imagine what it's like to live in that perpetual promise and that hope as, as a parent you, you, you adopt that and then you, you pass that on to your children and then they grow up living into it, hearing the words of the prophets and then there reaches a point where there are no more prophets speaking there's silence for 400 years there's silence And imagine, if you will, you continue to cling to this hope and this promise. God says He will send a Savior. God says that a Messiah will come, that one is coming who will make everything right, who will restore us. We just have to hang on. We just have to wait. And you teach that to your children, and your tr- children grow up. and and they continue to hear it and when they're adolescents they don't want to hear anything you have to say because you know nothing but then as they get older they're like maybe my parents do know what they're talking about and, and we continue to, to raise them you continue to raise them in this truth and, and, and then they pass that on to their children and, and, and generation after generation hears this but, but the silence from heaven has, has grown too loud it's almost deafening There's no one outside of your family who's speaking this truth and this promise. And so eventually, generations grow up. And in in the midst of there always being a small remnant, more and more people are growing up saying, maybe that's a myth. I don't know. I don't see evidence of it. And and silence. And you grow tired of waiting. And so you seek and you chase and you pursue other things. And gosh, it sounds like we're telling the story of our lives, doesn't it? Of a sudden, the silence is broken. On the outskirts of town, a man comes on the scene with this message. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The way that God has ordered things. The God who promised that he would send a Messiah, that things would be as they were intended to be, that God has not grown weary in keeping his promises. He has not forgotten about you. And imagine what it must have been like for that silence to be broken, and you hear that there's news of God's kingdom once again. And so you flock to where this message is, and you're hearing this invitation to repent and, and yes, we think of that as, as, as a turning around, turning from and turning to, but we, we tend to equate that with stop doing bad things and start doing more good things. right? Or, or the, the, the word of repent is at the end of a pointed finger. Repent, turn around, or you'll suffer an eternity in hell. And, and yet the call that John is giving here is simply, yes, it is a call to turn from and turn toward. But what if we thought of it like this? It's a call to come home. and, and those mo- moments, in, in the stories that we love, those moments where we have this depiction of someone returning home, there's a reason that that grabs us. There's a reason that our heart swells when we see that. I, I am a marshmallow when it comes to movies, so there's a reason that I tear up in these moments. And I'm going to tell you the, the one that, that, that stands out for me is... Um, in the, the Star Wars movie, The Force Awakens, when Han Solo and Chewbacca are standing in the Millennium Falcon again, and Han Solo says, Chewie, we're home. I promise you, I wept like a baby. I, I will confess that. I, but I grew up, I grew, I grew up that like my childhood was Star Wars, so that meant something to me. But the reason that means something to us is because we all have this longing for home, it's written into us. And that's simply what John is proclaiming. That's the invitation. Repent. Come home. Be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Let your baptism be an acknowledgement of the fact that you, you no longer want to try to do it your own way because that was our response to the silence. That is our response to the silence. We're tired of waiting for the kingdom to be fulfilled, and so we work really hard to create our own kingdoms where we get to rule and we get to reign. And it's a kingdom that is meant to serve us. My kingdom is meant to serve me and to elevate me and to glorify me. And those little kingdoms will always stand in opposition to the kingdom of God. And and John is proclaiming into that chaos and that mess, hey, it's time to come home. And so I want you to imagine, if you would, that you are on the banks of the Jordan. You've come out. You're, you're, you're in the queue, you're, you're in the line, you know, for, for people to go into the water and to be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, to mark this, this turning around, to mark your desire to come home and to live in the order of things that God created uh, for them to be, and to acknowledge that, that God is, is the only one who saves, that God is the only one worth worshiping and worth living for. Imagine you're in this queue, and all of a sudden, the line starts to back up. And and it's like being caught in a line of traffic. Like you can't see what's going on ahead of you and it's kind of frustrating for you because you don't know who it is that's holding up the line. But the reason that the line stops is because this this man enters the the scene and he, he comes to the edge of the Jordan from among the people. Jesus, who says to John, I need to be baptized by you. John John knows enough to know that his, his role is to prepare the way for Jesus. He says, I, I'm not even worthy to, to carry or to untie or to tie his, I, I'm not even worthy to handle his sandals. And Jesus says, no, we, we do this to fulfill all righteousness. And it's not because Jesus needed a baptism of repentance. Jesus was the only sinless one. It's so that in that moment, those gathered there, those who would recall that moment, the gospel writers who would, who would write about this moment would, would see that God is not content to leave humanity alone, but God is willing to enter into their midst, into their brokenness, into their filth, into their need for a baptism of repentance. God is willing to step into that in the person of Jesus, to set the example, to identify with broken humanity and being taken under the water, the waters of the Jordan through which the people of Israel passed generations before stepping into the promise that God gave them, coming up out of the waters of the Jordan and then this moment that Matthew records for us. Jesus came up Out of the water, heaven was open. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on Him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my love. With Him I am well pleased. Jesus identifying with humanity, coming from among the people, as it were. Being where we are, Stepping into the water the waters of this baptism, giving us the example to follow, and this proclamation over Jesus. This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. A proclamation of identity and pleasure. And we have to consider where this is in, in the timeline of Jesus' life. In this moment, Jesus has not begun his ministry. He he has been a carpenter's son. He's done that we know of nothing, public, ministry-wise, no healings, no teaching, and yet God's pleasure is over him. His identity is proclaimed, not because of what he's done, but because he is loved by the Father. That if you read right on to Matthew chapter 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. The enemy comes to him after 40 days of fasting and says to him: If you are the Son of God, take this bread, this stone, these stones, and turn it to bread. Look at the place that the enemy attacks Jesus first. His identity. If you are the son of God, you should be able to do this. Friends, every temptation that we are seized by, every temptation that comes against us is is at its core an attack on who we understand ourselves to be as children of God. God's pleasure is over you because God decided before the creation of the world that he wanted to adopt you as his children. And just like any adoption, the love exists in the heart of the parents before they ever meet the child that they are going to adopt. It's not because we've earned a place in God's kingdom. It's not because we've earned a place in God's family. It's because God's heart beat for us before we ever drew our first breath. And his adoption is made possible in the person of Jesus, giving us an identity and out of that identity, a purpose. And yet we live this life doing things in, hoping of creating, in hopes of creating an identity for ourselves. The problem is the things that we do often leave us broken and hurting and wounded. What if we began instead to live life out of the knowledge of who we are as those beloved by God, as his sons and daughters? that our identity comes first and out of our identity then we go about our days then we live into making this kingdom known on this earth then we begin to order our lives in which we are seeking to make the beauty of this kingdom present in our lives the lives of our families the lives of people around us and naming the brokenness where we see it saying that it doesn't have the final say and instead living into the fullness of who we are as God's children rather than seeking broken people and broken things to give us an identity. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased before Jesus ever performed his first miracle, before he ever opened the scriptures in in a way unlike any other. Merely by being willing to put on flesh, to step into the lives of humanity, to step into the waters of their baptism, to identify with us. God's Pleasure, God's love is spoken over Friends, Friends, that, that is what our baptism signifies. Our, our baptism is merely an opportunity for us to publicly say, or, or for parents, if you were baptized as an infant. The reason that we do that is because we believe that God's grace exists in our lives and is at work before we are even ever aware of it. So to baptize a child or an infant is to name that over that, that child trust and believe that God's grace is at work in the life of that child. And that there will come a time when they understand and hear their identity as God's child. We're invited to hear that again this morning, because we forget, we forget the world convinces us, the enemy convinces us that we are not loved by God because of something that we've done, because because of some choice that we've made, because of some way that we've treated someone. God's love is for you. Romans, end of chapter 8, there's nothing that you can do to place you outside of God's love for you in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So as you come forward this morning, as you hear the words spoken over you, remember your baptism and be thankful. Remember that you are a child of God. hope is that in that you hear that it's not because of what you've done. It's not because of the things you've accomplished. It's not because of what you've earned. It's merely because God's heart has existed for you before you ever realized it. It's an opportunity for you to remember who you are, to step again into that identity, to remember that God is faithful, that God longs for us to step into and. coming, to take a stand against the broken things in this world, to live as a people